My bones, blood, teeth are strung like a cello. The hair in my arms bristles in attunement with the cry of crows. The fist in my belly dissolves in the moonlight. Somehow, somehow my fight has become my devotion. Somehow my fight has become my devotion. And now, now dark honeyed wine pours from the troubles of my life. Good day to you, Rising Man family. This is your first nature host, Sean Barry, right here on the Rising Man podcast. Thank you so much for uh, dropping in for a listen. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to be bringing you a conversation I had recently with my good friend and also someone I consider a mentor and an elder. Uh, That man is Richard Palmer. Richard lives in a little enclave called Oakview, right there um, in the corridor between Ventura and Ojai here in Southern California. And uh, I've known Richard for over a decade. Um, And we've been building a friendship up over the years, but it really hasn't been until the last year, year and a half here that I've gotten to actually spend more time with Richard and sit and circle with him weekly with other men. And, um, and just cultivate a more, uh, you know, a deepening connection with him. And, uh, and really uh, just feel honored to uh, catch him for uh, some time to share with us about his life and uh, what's driven him and what he's been, uh, you know, coming to realize about who he is and what his purpose in life is and how he shares it. And um, yeah, I'm just uh, really excited to share this because I just get so much uh, listening to him share about his life and bring his wisdom to bear. Uh, so, but before I get too ahead of myself, you know, if there's one word to describe Richard and only one word that I could use to speak to who he is, that word would be poets. Uh, Richard is a, a passionate, inspired poet. He's been writing poetry for decades and uh, has published uh, seven books of his own poetry. And there's uh, a way that Richard is able to recite poetry, not only his own, but the dozens of poems he knows by heart. And when I say heart, I mean he knows them by his heart. Uh, um, not just his own, but from other poets that he really respects and admires. And when he recites a poem, there's something he's able to convey uh, in, in that oral tradition that um, I know for me, I just don't pick it up off the page. Um, he's somehow able to just really, uh, you know, elucidate the, the meaning and the passion and the intents behind the poets when he speaks poetry. And, uh, you know, I believe he brings that poetic lens to everything he does in his life. Um, Richard's been working with men individually and in groups of men for decades now as well. And uh, I know that he is, um, you know, passionate and has a vision about what it means to be a healthy, functional, uh, male man in this world and has uh, taken a stand and sacrificed a lot of other things in his life to to be available as that mentor, as that um, you know elder figure for other men as they uh, figure their lives out. And, um, and I certainly have gained myself uh, from just being in the presence of Richard and in conversations and hearing his insights and his wisdom and um, his curiosity and 
just his his general uh, you know just uh, enthusiasm for the mystery of life and and the great questions that are just um, uh, fun to grapple with. You know, we all know that there is no real answer to the purpose of life, really. But the uh, but the fun we can have in in grappling with the questions of what it all means is something I feel Richard uh, really embodies and and um, and dives into with gusto with anyone who's willing to sit down and, and drop into it. So um, yeah, there's so much I can say about Richard, but um, I'm just gonna let you I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna let him tell you himself. So um, yeah, I'm uh, we get into a lot of things in this conversation all the way from you know, just how poetry first came into his life as a teen and uh, getting into um, how men's work uh, became something that he realized he was passionate about and had wanted to advocate and take a stand for, for other men. Um, we definitely drop into uh, just how he started to understand, uh, you know, just what is ceremony and, um, and how to, uh, you know, to work with men, right? There's different, all these different models out there about how to understand and discover who we are as people and and who we are as humans and who are we in our relationships. And um, Richard was um, really influenced by a man named uh, Maladoma Somme, who came from Africa and brought a lot of African teachings and ceremonies and understandings around, um, you know, initiation and what it means to be a man and has brought that, uh, you know, here to Southern California and the men and the circles of men that he works with. Um, and something that uh, really resonated through all of our conversation was, was this idea of the daimon, the daimon. And I will let the, uh, the content of the podcast uh, define that and get into it. Um, but essentially it just means like the purpose, the calling, you know, the mission, what is it that um, is driving you to, to move forward as a human and, uh, and how that shapes and um, informs us about how to navigate our lives and, and heeding that call or not and the consequences that come from that. And, um, and beyond that, we just drop into a, a lot of different things about um, just, you know, living life, just how to live life artfully. Um, I really love Richard's uh, definition of soul. Soul is um, the, the work of art and healing coming together. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful creative uh, expression and a way to artfully engage, you know, our spirituality and this essence of just, you know, who are we? Who are we? So uh, I could go on, but it's going to be much more entertaining for you just to hear Richard share it himself. And um, so I really hope you enjoy uh, the conversation. And, um, you know, before I jump in, it's uh, I just have to tell you guys, if you're a man out there and um, and you're looking to get into these kinds of conversation, these kinds of you know, this this field of you know something you just heard, but that I said right now stirs you and you are feeling like yeah, I what is that? I, I want that. Something is pulling on me, you know, to come closer to it, whatever that is, and you don't know exactly what it is. Just go to risingman.org risingman.org and hit the programs page and uh, jump into the brotherhood, right? Just jump into the brotherhood and I'll let the webpage do the rest of the talking. Um, but essentially rising man is dedicated to a lot of the things that Richard is speaking to in this podcast. You know, we want to create a rich 
supportive context for, for men, you know, not just context, but community, like real community for men to really discover the truth of who they are apart from all the messaging of our culture and our society, apart from the messaging even of our families and our upbringing, right? We have to find a place where we are able to, uh, <clears throat> and this isn't just for men, it's for women too, but Rising Man is speaking specifically to men. You know, there's a, there's a point in the men's life where we need to uh, initiate into our own autonomy and our own sovereignty as an adult. Right? And how do we do that? How do we understand what that process is? Uh, you know, rites of passages is something that was in all of our lineages. All of our ancestors, going back to a certain time, um, had that acute, specific, conscious, uh, community-held experience where we were, uh, you know, we discontinued thinking and acting as an adolescent and stepped into and embraced and were supported in learning how to function responsibly and empowered as an adult, right? And uh, it's really hard to find that kind of um, container and that kind of community who understands the power of that and how, how emphatically important it is for us to make that emotional, spiritual, and mental transition right? It's just really not supported in our modern cultures. And, uh, and you'll hear in our conversation today how important it is and how essential it's been to all of humanity this whole time. And, uh, and, how, and so all that to say, Rising Man, you know, that's where we're taking our stand. We're bringing back that conscious work of initiating into adults, specifically initiating into men and, and you know, building a community around ourselves to support each other in how to sustain and maintain and grow into that adult we envision ourselves to be at our highest potential, our highest functioning, you know, capacity to be of service to our communities, uh, to our loved ones, to our families. So if that speaks to you and that interests you, um, please do go to Rising Man and check out the offerings there and um, just sign up for the Brotherhood. It's like the low hanging fruit. It's super inexpensive to get into you'll immediately be in a, a context uh, and a conversation of, uh, with other men who are uh, you know, holding this value and this intent as well uh, and, and approaching it with an honesty and an integrity and an authenticity and a vulnerability that I just, you know, there's very, I only know of really of one other circle <laughs> where that's happening. Um, so it's really hard to find and it's really powerful. And um and Rising Man is, uh, you know, the place where I've been really enjoying cultivating that with other men. And I believe you would too, if that's what's speaking to you. So risingman.org, check it out. In the meantime, uh, here's the conversation I had with Richard. I do hope you enjoy. And uh, we'll check in uh, once we reach the end. When I think about, um, you know, just everything I know about you, I mean, the poetry always comes through so strongly and I've enjoyed writing poetry off and on here and there over the years, but it's never really grabbed me in the way that I see it grabs you and yeah. people that I see consider themselves poets. And I'm just curious about like, uh, how did that all start? That's interesting. Um, love, 14, first love, um, my girlfriend um, wrote me poetry and I just, 
was like, wow, magic words. And I immediately was so uh, astonished by her magical words. You know, it wasn't about it being great poetry. It was that she was, she had the desire to uh, soak her words in imagination. Mm. And um, I didn't know that was possible at 14. And it really nicely coincided with that, you know, crush, love, giddy, dazzling feeling of first love. And so um, I remember thinking, I want to be able to do that. And I didn't know how, but she kept writing me poems. And, um, and then one day I wrote her one about picking up um, colored leaves in autumn and holding hands at 14. And I thought that I was like touching some sacred realm that I didn't know anything about, but I was smitten mm -hmm. with. And then of course the poetry became much more important than the girl. <laughs> that was my girl. <laughs> right, right. And I really haven't stopped since. Uh, but it did change at 42. I made a vow to write every morning and uh, because I was um, a dabbler and I, I didn't want to be a dabbler. Mm -hmm. I remember reading about Paul Gauguin being a weekend painter and he got really angry if somebody called him a weekend painter. <laughs> no more, you know, so he got divorced, moved to Tahiti and started, and we know the rest. I mean, his painting is amazing, but he had to commit. And mm -hmm. so that, that story was very important to me because I wanted to see what would happen if I wrote every day because I was okay that once in a while I would touch that numinous place that, you know, the great poets touched Neruda, Mary Oliver, Whitman, my favorites. Um, but it wasn't often enough. And so I wanted to know. And so I finally just, um, and I, I, I call it non-negotiable. Right. That I will never um, betray this vow. And I haven't. So that's been 24 years of every morning. And it doesn't mean I write good poetry every morning. It means that I'm writing every morning and something accrues. And um, I've given a signal to my soul that I'm really devoted and serious. And so um, some things have happened in my writing that I know wouldn't have happened uh -huh. had I just dabbled. So that's been fun. Yeah, yeah. That's really accented. That's interesting you start off with that question because that's something that I don't talk about a lot. It's kind of background, um, but it's really core to me. It's, um, I'd say it's one of my primary lovers. Yeah, yeah, it's a great way to say it. Yeah, yeah. So I take care of her. Mary Oliver was asked once, um, how do you write such great poems and you're so prolific? And she says, I keep my appointment. Right. Yes. So I do. And it's like from seven to nine, somewhere in there. And uh, so the silence, the quiet, the candles, it's a ritual. And, um, reading other poets. Um, but basically it's, it's what David White says, having the courageous conversation with myself, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. turning towards myself and 
And it's especially hard when I'm in grief or I'm angry. And in years past, I would have said, well, I'll just wait till that passes so I could be in a better mood and write and say, no. The artist faces whatever's here. I've been writing about my dad recently, and that's the toughest subject for me of all because he was so violent. He gets triggered once in a while, so I've been turning towards that again. And then this last week, I had a client whose uh, sweetheart killed herself. So, you know, the old me would have said, well, let's wait till that passes. Right. No. So I go right into that dark swamp of uh, the unthinkable. You said to me uh, one time, I forgot what the conversation was, but what was it? You were saying that uh, uh, soul is uh, art and or something. Art and healing coming together. Healing. Yeah, yeah. I think they're reflections of each other, and I think that's where the soul work is for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, making art, which is the poetry for me. But, you know, it could be painting or dancing or singing. But for me, it's poetry. And I'm learning that what I'm writing about has always got some relationship with healing in it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's all about healing, but it's always got something to do with healing. What would you say, what would you say your, your general definition of healing is for you? Like, what does that word mean to you? Well, I had a teacher once that tried to tell me what it was, and I haven't come up with a better definition. I like it a lot. Um, I think it's expanded since then. But this was Ron Kurtz back in 92. He said, healing is providing the missing experience. Uh -huh. Not the missing insight, not the missing um, revelation even, but the experience. And I think it's pretty good mm -hmm. because when we've been hurt, the way for wounds to heal is not just to get safe, and quiet again, which is like first what you have to do. But then if you want to heal that old wound, it has to be replaced with something beautiful. That, um, but what's interesting, the timing is important because even though somebody may know that they need a new experience, they may not be ready for it. So that unfolding has its own organic wisdom. Sometimes right in the middle of a healing moment when a new experience is offered, you can see the client partially take it in and then the other part of them rejects it. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Even love can be too much. Yeah, I can see that. I, mean, I can think of moments <laughs> in my own life where I've been yeah. like, mm, not yet. Uh, yeah. That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so then, and then there's this other part that um, obviously – we know each other through, which is the rites of passage work. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I know that poets in general and yourself included um, call, there's just a lot of reflection on nature and, and metaphor of nature that runs through poetry 
Yep. And through your work and your personal experience, and I'm just wondering to hear a little more about how, you know, when did you realize that nature was going to become an important component consciously to just keep in your life? And how has it, you know, stayed in your life? You know, I've never really liked the word nature because it's, oh. it's one of those words that have become abstracted, yeah. like wholeness or transformation. Nature. And <laughs> right. they'd say, well, what does that even mean? So I have a problem with the word, but I'll tell you um, a word I like better is um, the elemental. Mm -hmm. um, that word still has a lot of juice for me. And so when my life cracked open to the elemental was in 99 when I met Maladoma Somme and I did a, a three-year apprenticeship with him. And, uh, you know, it's the oldest place on the planet, Africa. And so they're all about the elements. And so they don't even use the word psychology, but if they did, their psychology would be uh, a five elemental cosmology, fire, water, earth, and they use the word nature and mineral. And for them, nature is um, trees and forests and plant life. It's the plant spirits. Oh, okay. So they differentiate earth from plant spirits um, from mineral. They separate those out. And so um, I started to be trained in learning rituals uh, from each element. And I was told I was in the fire clan. And what does that mean to be in the fire clan? Um, and so it started to get more particular. And to me, that was the soul life right there. And I, I realized up until that point, my psychological training was, was pretty good. It was pretty diverse. It was even body-centered. Um, but it didn't have that deep shamanic elemental punctuation that I was yearning for. And I, and I didn't even know I was yearning for it. But boy, when I bumped into it, I never went back. I just mm -hmm. went deeper. So that's that's been last 24 25 years that's really deepened my healing work and my poetry and just my life in general very fiery and um but sometimes i need more water mm -hmm. to become more fluid and that's you know and most indigenous cultures believe that's where healing is in water and then earth is they believe um, where our home is and that's that's our deep connection and bond with the earth so it has to do with belonging mm -hmm. and then nature or the plant world is change and novelty, magic, revelation. It's its where they say the genies live. Uh -huh. And then mineral is like the bones of the earth, the old, old stories. 
And so what I just described, how much more interesting is that than a psychological journal? (laughs) So I'm a bit of a rogue in that I was psychologically trained, but I was always hungry for this deeper, more ancient, traditional wisdom. I think I was called, even as a young child, to do this work. That's why I believe in, um, it's funny, I just saw a comic I really liked a lot, Neil Brennan, and he he's he did that thing with Jerry Seinfeld and the comedians in oh, cars yeah. yes. and coffee. Yes. And, you know, Seinfeld is like the king of comedy, or one of them anyway. And this young Neil Brennan, who worked with Chappelle, he wasn't intimidated at all. Matter of fact, he said, I never really liked your show. <laughs> The reason I'm talking about him is he is uh, Seinfeld says, what do you mean? You don't like this car? Because he's always got a new car. And he says, you don't like stuff? And he goes, no, I don't like all that stuff. He goes, well, then what do you like? He says, ideas. Uh-huh. So that's, that's me. I'm an idea guy. And so um, the idea of the Greeks, um, that there's a genius inside everyone, the daimon, D-A-I-M-O-N. That that is probably one of the most central ideas of my life. And every client I sit in front of, sooner or later, that becomes a conversation of whether or not they're in relationship with their own genius. And if they're not, they're not really fully alive. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that's funny about couples. One, if if one or both are not in service of their diamond, they end up blaming each other. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they say, well, if I wasn't with you, I'd be a dancer. <laughs> At some point, that's kind of a, a, a cheap shot. You know, you got to have courage to follow it, whether yeah, you're in a relationship yeah. or not. So um, that's a big one for me. Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, I've, you know, I'm familiar with that word in some smaller sense, but uh, I'm curious to hear more. Like, you know, when you sit down to work with somebody, you know, because you're saying like, you know, you're in the fire clan, you're a fire person, you're, uh, your weak spot is water. <clears throat> Everyone has a diamond. So I'm just looking at when you sit down with somebody, how do you, you know, what's your process around uh, just understanding where this person's coming from, determining what their elemental strengths and weaknesses are. Um, how, how does one discover their diamond if they're not in touch with it? Like, what is Well, you issue? start listening to them. Uh, and and I, I don't believe that I can invite anybody towards that subject unless I'm embodying it myself. So I tell them, you know, I, this is my medicine. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm, I'm in service of the healer archetype and the artist. So the healer and the artist or the shaman and the poet, however you want to say it, the visionary and the poet. So I am, that that is my medicine. And so I'm inviting whoever I'm sitting in front of to do the same. Why? Because you'll be more alive. Mm-hmm. And I think I shared this with you that when a person's in their medicine, the best definition I've heard is that they're irresistible. Right. right. Their, their presence is uh, magnetic and you want to be around them. And so how do I do that with um, individuals is I, I listen with a lot of curiosity and reverence. Mm-hmm. I listen to their dreams and there's patterns that repeat from childhood about what people really, really love. And when you listen, you hear those patterns and you go, oh, that again. Oh, that that thing again is emerging. And they go, yeah, well, you know, I used to be a painter, but I gave it up. Why? 
-hmm. Well, because I became a lawyer. And it's like, well, do you love being a lawyer? Well, no, but, and then the, the rationalizations that come in around security. And I get it. I get it. We all need to make money, but that's never been a big, it's never been a good enough excuse for me. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I have to love my life. And I know it takes courage to do that. And um, for instance, there's not a lot of uh, female partners that are in love with a young man that's an artist or a healer when he's not making enough money to buy a house. Mm -hmm. So then you have an existential decision. Do you want to compromise and get the house and you know, become a manager at, at, at Lowe's? And, you know, I don't have judgment about uh, people doing that. I just can't do that. Right, right. And so um, for me, this idea of the daimon, well, it's, it's life or death, actually, for me, because if I don't follow it, um, you know, Plato came up with the idea. It's um, the myth of Ur, and I won't go into it, but he says when you don't follow the daimon, it starts to turn demon. Yeah. And so what happens is, is you get sick, it comes out sideways, you, you start becoming alcoholic, you start slapping your kids, whatever. Right. right. You're not happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're ignoring your calling. But it doesn't also mean that your life's easier because you're following your time. It's not easier. It's just real. Yeah. I can definitely, you know, <laughs> you know, doesn't yeah, mean easier. I definitely uh, feel like I've, 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 you know, to put it in this context, really just in the last two years, I've fully said yes to the diamond. It's revealing itself deeper to me. And yeah, what a, what a roller coaster ride. Um, just experientially, just experiencing myself, making how I, you know, once I sort of intuitively started to prioritize this urge, this passion, this vision to uh, do this book project, right? And I've had a lot of passions and urges in the past, and but I've always kind of kept them contained within the security of like, got to keep up a job though, you know? And I don't know, something, something got away yeah. this time. And, uh, you know, it's like when you see uh, small people with a big dog, and the, and the dog takes off and then they can't stop the dog. That's right. They're, just, they're getting drugged along. What I noticed with, with people that I serve is that somewhere around 40, I don't know why that is, but, you know, mm -hmm. midlife, somewhere around 40, if you haven't been following your daimon, it, it starts to crack the foundation and you start getting um, nightmares or symptoms. And, you know, Jung said a long time ago that, that the gods are in the symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, the gods are no longer in Mount Olympus. He said they're in the symptoms. And Hillman said our symptoms are the soul's deepest desire. And so you start looking at symptoms is another way to track the daimon, especially when they're chronic. And when we don't listen, our symptoms get chronic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's another way to track it. Um, there's a congruence, and I love that word. There's a congruence that begins to happen when we're in service to the daimon, and um, it does ask us to make sacrifices, though, like maybe leave a bad relationship, leave a bad job. Um, but see, now it's it's no longer just loss that's meaningless. Now it's loss that has meaning uh -huh. 
because I'm giving up this bad relationship in service of living larger in my medicine. Mm -hmm. I can tolerate that. But if I just have a bad relationship for no reason, <laughs> that's pretty rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I can I can definitely understand that. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, just kind of reflecting on my own, you know, path over the years and thinking about the times that I've found myself in something that was... I remember when I... Um, you know, I used to do motion graphics and computer right. animation, and I, and I freelanced my entire career, except for the last gig I got. And it was the best-paying gig I had, but I had to be on staff. Right. And I, so I had to, like, show up every morning at a certain time, stay till a certain time. Sure. You know, there was this, um, you know, very uh, different orientation to doing the work. And I remember that I... Uh, it got to a certain point because it was a it was a long job, and so there was just iterations, iterations. A lot of times, I was just spending my time, you know, in my creativity, but also just doing iterations. So there wasn't a lot of exploratory creativity happening, which is really what I did enjoy about that work. And so sometimes the weeks would feel the drudge on, and I remember ripping open my paycheck at one point and just doing the math in my head. And I caught myself, I've been doing that for a number of, you know, months. And it just got to a point where I, I caught myself kind of doing it in the moment. And I just realized that, wow, I'm, I'm doing this job. Like my creativity is in service of this number. Yep. And I was just like, oh my God, like I, I can't, like I, I knew the jig was up a long time ago, but I, I, I continued to stuff it, you know, in some way. The quality of our soul starts to get um, coerced into being quantified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do a number, and that's when it's it's a kind of a soul death. At least yeah. it is for me. Yeah, yeah, and I'm so I'm just really thinking about that the quality of that moment, the quality of how it felt, the recognition, all the all the stories and stuff that just came tumbling forward in that moment about like what was my life about? You know, and this was I was in my late forties. You know, so I think that's really what kind of um, set it off for me was just realizing that. I can't just sit here and watch a number grow. That's right. You know, that's that's not going to cut it for me. <laughs> well, it, it'll grow and your soul will shrink. Yeah, yeah. And then it's just kind of a slow death. Yeah. It's terrible. Well, you got out of it. I did. I did. And I, I look back at that moment of sort of the seminal moment where uh, it's taken me forward to now, which is, wow, on, on you know, seven, mm -hmm. almost eight years later. So, yeah, very different place. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting to hear you talk about the elementals, too, because, um, you know, being someone who's very involved in community building um, and also my Capricorn, so Earth comes up a lot, you know, and, sure. as, as, and I have a high value for community and home and a sense of place. And so this is an interesting question to get into because – but the majority of my life I've bounced around and I've not held down a stable relationship and I just somehow cannot, you know, reconcile this deep desire for it. But looking over, you know, the 35 years of decision-making as an adult and being like, wow, I haven't been choosing it. It isn't, you know, at this stage of life, this is no. when you, you know, I'm realizing as I get older, I start to realize that you can really start to see the patterns of your decision-making over the years. And you can really start to see the, the fruits, you know, yeah. and it's like, wow, I've spent so much of my life contributing and building different communities and, and I don't really have it for myself. I'm just kind of. Well, there's ship builders and there's ship dwellers. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. And I sound like more like a builder. I, I'm the same. I build community too. I don't necessarily want to hang out there every day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I do need to access it. So for me, it's the rhythm between solitude and intimacy is like a dance. And if I, if I'm in solitude too much, I start to get isolated and then I get itchy for people. And, and then when I'm in intimacy, I get fed, um, the whole spirit of Ubuntu, you know, people becoming people through people, which I just love that definition of mm-hmm. Ubuntu. But then I start to get suffocated because I don't know if I'm hearing them or me. So then I come back to solitude. And then so my whole life, I think for most people, especially artists, it's like, where is that that groove where where you have intimacy and you have solitude and you need both? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely feel that as an artist, as a creative person. Uh, I'm curious though, just having worked with you know Maladoma and um, and I've you know I, I had a little bit of time with his former wife um, Sabanfu in a program that I was in, read one of her books, and this question I have too is knowing that you know if we if we go far enough back into our individual lineages, all of us have you know ancestors that were living f- more fully in community. Absolutely. And there were artists and creative peoples in those communities too. Always. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or, you know, if you've ruminated a little bit on just what was it like to be in a much more context, you know, community context and still having that sort of in and out with it, you know, and, and those more closer knit kind of communities. And um... Oh, I think I have, was born with a kind of an insatiable longing for village life. Um, I'm a double Aquarian, so I'm all about community. I'm all about group, and I'm all about um, friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, John O'Donohue's um, Celtic um, words, um, Anamkara, are like central to my life's journey. So, like, you know, you're one of my Anamkaras, which means soul friendship. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, yeah, I long for that time, and I know that we don't have it anymore. So one of the big griefs that I have to tolerate in my life is knowing that we don't have that anymore, but I do my best to what I call patchworking. Uh-huh. So I'm patchworking community. Well, we're not going to have it like we did hundreds and thousands of years ago, but they also died at 35 from <laughs> a flea bite or something. You know, so. Right. Yes. There was definitely a, there was a trade-off. Yeah. Most definitely. Uh, but even Africa, you know, even though it's changing, um, still has a sense of, of that indigenous community and uh, certain parts of the world still have that, like the Aboriginal world. Um, the challenge here in America is to take that wisdom and then translate it into more of a, a mind-centered paradigm, which we live in here in America. And um, um, as much as that can um, be tedious and dry. Um, it's where we live. And if you just take the direct soul experience, like from a ritual, let's just say it has 10,000 volts of energy. And I sit down with a client and unleash that on them. Mm-hmm. It'll just blow them out of the room. So then I have to translate everything right? and transpose it and make it bite size for clients and even my men's groups. And, you know, some can handle more than others just like me, but um, 
yeah, it's, it's something that we have to live with. There's a part of me that it's certainly in my dream life, I visit that village uh, life thousands of years ago in my dreams. And I, I, I wake up weeping sometimes because it isn't here. Yeah. 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 Francis Weller wrote a, a book called the wild edge of sorrow. And he talks about, you know, five um, levels of grief and uh, the fourth calls them gates. The fourth gate is the one that most people don't really think about. But for me, it's the biggest. Um, it, it, it makes me weep more than any of the other gates. And it's, it's the gate that, that knows that we were supposed to be welcomed by dozens and dozens and dozens of aunts and uncles and grandparents. Mm. And they were singing our name all night long when we were born. Mm. And we didn't get that. Yeah. And so there's a hole inside of us. And we got seen by two eyes, if we're lucky, four eyes, our parents. But that's generally it. You know, you're lucky if you have brothers and sisters, but we're not being uh, seen and and heard and celebrated like we would be in a village where every lactating mother is nursing the new baby. Yeah, yeah. It's not just one. Yeah. And so we don't have that. And that's a huge, I, I have a lot of grief about that. You know, the first gate is personal loss. Um, what's the second gate is um, things that have not been touched by love, mm. like, um, like say maybe my art. If mm. my if my poetry is a secret and I'm not writing, then that would be the loss at the second gate. Something that I I, I haven't brought out to the world, have it be greeted by love. The third one is um, the loss of um, all the animals. Mm. and um, all the languages and, um, you know, things that we're losing every day. Yeah. And, yeah. and then um, then there's, a, uh, I think the fifth gate is an ancestral uh, gate where that's interesting because most people are either not in touch with their ancestors or the wounds are so horrific that they don't want to be near them. Yeah. And so we have that problem in the West where, you know, it's not just like a village can happen overnight because most people I know want to get away from their family. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you have a village with that? So it's complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. But it that, is. but that fourth gate is, is one that I, uh, I feel every day mm-hmm. is that longing for village. Yeah. And it's not here. Um, like we are Coyote Clan meets Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And that's nice. Mm-hmm. It's good. It feeds about a sixteenth of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we, uh, you know, we we meet the opportunities we can, right? We do the best we can. Yeah, yeah. Just like meeting right here. Yeah. Writing feeds me. Mm-hmm. My friends feed me. My work. When I when I'm around courageous people longing to heal and longing to bring in beauty. Because see, that's another part of my daimo. It's not just the healing, but it's beauty. It's um, it's what William Blake called the shining city of art. He says, no matter what comes at you, 
you know, how horrific the suffering is, you can make art out of it. And I absolutely know that that's life changing. Mm -hmm. So to bring, that's why the flowers. Yeah, yeah. That that's was why the shrine. That's why the stick. I was just rewinding the burlap on the stick because I have a men's group tonight. And, you know, these men expect this stick to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And there's a roomy poem inside here. Nice. Let's bring it in. Let's bring the poem in. Yeah. Um, a night full of talking that hurts. My worst held back secrets. Everything has to do with loving and not loving. This night will pass and we have work to do. I think just about every poem I write, I'm trying to touch that poem. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, I love that. They want to see that stick, beautiful. And there's something that happens when you hold a beautiful stick, as you know. And how long has this been going on? So then there was not only a beautiful word, but there was a word that was musical and had a wonderful um, kind of a, sometimes a percussive sound or sometimes a melodic sound and um, sometimes a watery sound. So there's that. Um, but still, in the beginning stages, I was writing about something. What I've learned in my commitment with writing is that... Um, the art has deepened, and so it's a wonderful book by Rollo May called The Courage to Create. It's 100 pages, life-changing book. Wow. He talks about um, the encounter with the object that you are writing about or creating about, and then he talks about not only is it an encounter, but it's an intensification of the encounter. And so for me, um, that's why the silence in the morning is I'm trying to get close to an image like from a dream. So it's all about imagination. And um, in the cultic world, they differentiate the fancy from imagination. The fancy is like something your mind makes up. Uh -huh. But imagination is like directly from the soul. And it, it's, it's got girth. It's got weight. It's, it's you know, it's palpable. And so what I call art is when I'm in the dream stream. Dream stream, yeah, I like I, I like the term dream stream mm -hmm. because it's a way of doing what Thoreau called living the dream awake. So it's like you're in the dream, but you're awake and you're like not writing about the stream, you're in the stream. And then you write from the stream. Uh -huh. To me, that's the best poetry. Um, and. I learned that from Whitman, who has a sense of immediacy. So it's a heightened 
um, encounter. It's a heightened presence. It's not talking about a blue jay on the on the line. That's nice. It's like getting inside the blue jay. Yeah, yeah. And feeling that squawk vibrate through your body. To me, that's art. Mm. That's the kind of art I'm interested mm. in. Otherwise, it's just too flat for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. It's good. You know, it's kind of building out this uh, foundation of the conversation. Um, uh, I'd like to come back to just this idea of the elementals too, and just that training sure. with Maldoma. And, you know, for you, so, you know, you said you learned a lot of rituals that go with those elementals. And, yeah. And obviously there's ritual involved. I mean, this, uh, you know, this talking piece you put together, obviously, uh, you know, hints at a lot of ritual and sacredness within it or what it's used for. Yeah. So um, I'd love to hear a little more about just how, you know, the coming into an understanding of uh, the elementals or, you know, these um, kind of fixated points of observing nature and having some kind of ritual practice around them hasn't just brought ritual into your life and, you know, making this connection between the, the natural world and, you know, your poetry and creativity and the way you work with men for, with healing. And, um, and yeah, just kind of working on a, a patchwork. <laughs> when I, when I realized that, um, the oldest, um, caves in the world. I think the oldest one discovered right now is in the south of France. Um, 40,000 years. Uh, wonderful um, DVD, um, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Uh -huh. Just a magnificent documentary. And what you find when you see these cave paintings of, of the bison and the, and the horses, and I think even rhinos and mammoth, and it looks like they're done with... Um, with plant, but blood and, 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 you know, they've been there for 40,000 years, but right in that same, it's like a opened out, um, huge space is a fire pit. And they found, um, the skull of a cave bear. Wow. And they realized that this is the place where the young boys were initiated. Uh -huh. Same place is where the art is. So look uh -huh. at that. You got art and healing coming together right there. Mm -hmm. And that's 40,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So art and healing are the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And um, that excites me. That just absolutely. And so the ritual, the word ritual I've been taught means to enact the sacredness of life. Or it's another way of saying it's a bridge from this world to the spirit world. And so when I did my apprenticeship with Maladoma and I got versed in each element, the five elements of Africa, what be, first it was just, you know, entrancing these rituals like ancestor rituals. It's a fire ritual. And then, of course, um, grief rituals or water rituals. <coughs> then there's um, reclaiming rituals that have to do with the earth and and nature. And then there's um, getting in touch with the old story is with the stones. And so when you start getting versed in that, what happens is, um, as I began to sit with people and hear their story, you could hear 
part of their story was crying out for a certain element. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, what do you think we put together a fire ritual? What do you think we bring in a, um, you know, a nature ritual of, uh, for change and, and magic? And, and so you start to listen for the ritual that wants to come out, not the one that I'm in love with, but the one that the person sitting in front of you is in their story. You can hear a cry for a certain element. And sometimes it's uh, it's a couple of them. And so that's been exciting. And not everybody's open to it, but a lot more are than I ever knew. Um, I, I tend to attract people that are um, elementally hungry and, and um, you know, they say nature is their church or whatever the words they use. I call myself a born-again pagan. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> just because I like pissing off fundamentalist Christians. It's kind of a passion of mine. <laughs> well, you got to have something. Got to have something. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and you know, you're in your 60s. 66. 66. So you're definitely entering this time of, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, and a sense of elderhood or a sense of, I was an know, elder in training in my thirties and forties and fifties. Okay. And I, and I knew it, I could feel I was an elder in training, but I, it's like, when am I an elder? When am I an elder? And of course, even calling yourself one, it's got ego in it. Yeah. I, I so I, then I began to find out one of my mentors said 58 is like the doorway to elderhood. And, and I know it's not fixed like that, but it started to make sense to me. It started to come together to me that right around 58, it's like in your fifties, there's just, there's no tolerance for bullshit anymore. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know <laughs> that. You just can't tolerate it. Just can't spend the energy. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> and things start to get lighter. It's like the tree gets pruned down to its essence. So towards 60, it gets so, your life gets so essential. I'll speak for myself. Mine got so essential. You know, I went through a crazy divorce that I didn't have any business being involved in, but Obviously, I'm not in control, so I needed to go through that on some some level. So by 60, it's like the diamond that I thought I was serving and I was, was amplified by a thousand percent. I just really started to um, step up even more consciously, um, not, not able to be distracted like I was can't be distracted like I was when I was younger. Right, right. Just doesn't have the hold on me. Um, I've heard bits and pieces about that uh, crazy time. Um, I'd love to hear a poem around that time, if you have one. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, This was the dark period when I went through my divorce, and I call um, this book Dark Honeyed Wine because I... Um, the idea of Blake's that he has these four levels of consciousness and the bottom level is like anarchy where you're a criminal. And then the second level is like a duality, his or her towels mm-hmm. and left and right and up and down. And then the third level is he calls Beulah where you're in the, the garden of moonlit lovers and you fall in love and, and everything is beautiful. It's like returning to Eden. 
but we can't stay there. Right. So we fall out of Eden, and then we generally go back to the bottom. Uh, and he called that, or Robert Bly called it, the desert of narcissistic cold. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> but Blake said there's not just a south door to Beulah in the Moonlight Garden of Lovers. There's a north door. Now, this just totally blew the top of my head off. And Bly was giving this talk, and it was right after 911. And, um, oh, that was it's called Abiquiu, where Georgia O'Keeffe did her work and where she lived. So Bly's giving this talk on Blake, and he said that when you fall out of love and you're falling back down into hell, like every lover does, he says, Blake taught that there's a north door you can go through, and the north door leads to the fourth level, which is the shining city of art. Uh-huh. Oh, being an idea person, when I learned that, I thought all of my most hellish moments, I can I can try to distill into gold now, because this is it's like Viktor Frankl being in Auschwitz. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I can try to make meaning out of absolute horror mm-hmm. so on the back is this poem my bones blood teeth are strung like a cello the hair in my arms bristles in attunement with the cry of crows the fist in my belly dissolves into moonlight somehow somehow my fight has become my devotion somehow my fight has become my devotion and now now dark honeyed wine pours from the troubles of my life. Mm. And that's that's a big part of what my life's work is about, is trying to touch that place where um, the troubles don't get the last word on my living. Like, oh, I have these troubles, so I have to live narrow. I have to get a job and feed myself and all of a sudden I have no soul. No, the troubles can actually inform me in such a way that I can bring in more beauty mm-hmm. and sing and dance maybe differently, maybe um, with a limp, maybe with blurred vision in my 60s. But nonetheless, there's a there's a grit and a gravitas that I didn't have when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. And so... You notice it's not, it's not um, Chablis white wine that just sparkles like diamonds. No, it's dark honeyed wine. This is dark wine, thick. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but it feeds something. It feeds something in the soul that I didn't have when I was younger. Now, do you find, um, you know, what? What's your experience like when you? realize something's coming down the pike that you've like well you know the uh, the fist in the belly these kind of first few lines they're talking about the the things you recognize are about to take your life for a side turn yeah. you're not wanting yeah. yeah yeah you know i i know for me and it, you know i'm getting better at it but you know 10 15 20 years ago i would just <laughs> rage against the machine and you know right, right. Reject it, resist it, push against it, you know, just do everything I could to like fight it off. And I'm realizing now for me, just one, I don't want to 
allocate the energy, the time to doing it that way. There's a, there's a little more of a submission going in into Mm -hmm. it, you know, of just like, all right, here we go. Here it comes. Um, but I still have a lot of, you know, fear and anxiety and resistance that still is there along the way. Um, it takes me forever to kind of come to terms with it. So to, to, you know, start looking for the, you know, emotionally to start to feel the light at the end of the tunnel, you know? And, um, so I'm just wondering what that's like. I think this is a multi-layered question and it's a really big one. And, um, for men, especially, you know, we're not supposed to emote and we're certainly not supposed to grieve. And we live in a grief phobic culture, we live in a death phobic culture. And so how does a man take difficult losses, like loss of uh, love, loss of a marriage, loss of a job, loss of a dream, um, loss of heaven forbid a child. Um, So these are the givens of life. And so the first obstacle is that we live in a in a in a country that preaches rugged individualism, like we were talking about the other day with Calvinism, and you know where you're not supposed to um, have emotions and pleasure, and so your life is very just do what you're supposed to. That's never made sense to me. So I'm a very passionate, intense, fiery guy, and so I've I've needed fire breaks for my emotion, and so. Here's how I'll, I'll respond to your, your question, and it's taken years to realize, is I, I cultivated what I call a daily sacred practice with the writing every morning. Mm-hmm. So that's one refuge that I, where I take my um, angst and my grief. Um, the other one is community, brothers. I used to be in a circle that had men and women, and that was beautiful um, also, so it doesn't matter what gender, but you have to have community. You have to have a daily sacred practice um, and you have to have a relationship with the elements, with nature mm-hmm. every, every day. Um, and so there have to be places to take those big emotions. And I do, I'm really lucky and it's my work. So I see my life is set up now where I can't fall off the horse anymore because I'm in three groups a week. I have my practice in the morning. My friends, if I get off the beam, will say, what the hell's going on with you? Right, right. People will call me on it. Whereas when I was younger, I always had escape routes. And I could always kind of sneak out the back door and nobody would notice. Now everybody will notice. Yeah, yeah, I see that. I see that. So, yeah. I'm no longer afraid of the big um, breakups, the big emotion. I'm not immune from it. I still get wrecked and heartbroken um but there's a place to take it now now i write about it now i have friends to take it to i have the wilderness to take it to so i'm i'm, I'm really supported in my life mm-hmm. yeah. so when you take it to nature for instance or take it out to the wilderness um you know what is your general um you know connection to the elements you know just getting outside, going on hikes, getting in water, you know, yep. Um, yep. just how does that play a part? In- yeah, basically that is is just, there's something about the rhythm of walking like an animal, feeling the pound of, uh, like, I imagine having hooves or mm-hmm. talons, and I just, my animal self, uh, that wonderful book by um, David Abrams, Becoming Animal, mm-hmm. um, 
I just relate with that so much. And so getting out in nature, I, I get into my animal self. For me, it's it's oak trees. I have a real passion for oak trees and I, I will touch them and rub against them. I'll climb in them. <coughs> I think I'm actually becoming an oak tree. Uh-huh. That's It feels like that's where I'm headed. Yeah. My oakness. You got a poem about that? Oh, I got many. <laughs> uh, let's hear it. It's the last poem of my recent book. Ah, yes. Drinking Starlight. Teach me to be a maker of soul. And so that was the other one of the powerful ideas is this idea that the alchemists had that you can actually cook the raw material of life into the philosopher's stone Uh and that um, you can melt lead into gold. And so that idea of alchemy is is very, very primary to me. And it's the same idea that John Keats had in the early, it's like 1802, about, um, he wrote a letter to his brother and he said, do you not see how necessary a world of pain and troubles is to school and intelligence and make it a soul? Mm. And so this idea of taking the difficult and turning it into beauty, I mean, I just read that. But this is another version of uh, more in terms of nature and that oak tree Tom and I often um, when we think of like the elder we think of uh, grandfather oak have you seen those ancient oaks far off the trail clinging to shale and granite cliffs they are the elders the survivors the grandfathers who brave every pounding rainstorm and every sweltering sun-baked summer. Have you noticed the layers that life has lavished upon them? Thick garments on curling mossy limbs, long lacy lichens, waggling beards in the wind, acorn-crusted bark-crumbling skin, a magnificent mosaic of weather-pummeled, centuries-seasoned, animal-haven temple of beauty. You are the teacher, the shaman of trees, the maker of soul. Whatever life offers you, you love into your wild branching body. Whether harsh or humble, you welcome all of life. Whether sparrow or storm, you say yes, and then wrap your majesty around and with the incoming song. Oh, grandfather, teach me to be a maker of soul. Teach me to listen and bend and welcome the wild thrashing thrum of life. I am growing old too. My beard is gathering moss and pollen and forgotten dreams. Oh, eldest one, teach me to surrender to the terrors and the graces of this life. Teach me to become a temple where all who enter are fashioned into the weathered seasons of my becoming. definitely at a stage of life where 
the end is foreseeable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where do you, um, you know, how do you frame, you know, just the humanist, the humanity that you are living out in this way, getting towards that time of life where you can really start to look at the retrospective journey of it and look at the time that's, you know, that's left for you to, to, you know, <clears throat> share it in some way. How do you hold that sort of sense of elderhood, that sense of what is a life's work? Um, you know, what is your legacy? It's uh, about mentoring. Uh-huh. It's about singing the soul in other people's lives, mm-hmm. what I call listening their soul into the world. And um, it thrills me to do that. Even in the writing, it's about, you know, that encounter. And so I even call my work and have for years mentoring the life of the soul. It's not called therapy. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want it to have that, that clinical microscopic kind of feel. It's, it's, it's more about like walking with a grandfather along the river. And he's, he's so present and listening that you're not even aware of why you're sharing what you're sharing, but it's his presence that invites you to. Ram Dass said it more beautifully than anybody I've ever heard. He said, the best you can give another person is to become an environment for them to discover who they need to be. Mm. Yeah, and great. I just, I, that's what I, uh, that's what I aim for. Yeah, that's beautiful. I aim to become that environment with, and that means I have to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. That means I have to get enough sleep. I can't drink too much tequila. I like tequila. <laughs> I, you know, one nice little drink um, is good, not three or four. Yeah. Um, don't overeat. And um, mainly don't get distracted in meaningless relationships and meaningless trivia, meaningless technologies. I really try to protect my my uh, soul life. So when I'm sitting in front of somebody, they can feel um, that there's room to move. It's it's like it would be like uh, running through a garden as opposed to you know the chaos of a city. Right, right. So I'm here to help other people shine now. Yeah. And that gives my life tremendous meaning. And some of these ideas that have been primary to me like Blake's Shining City of Art, like the Daimon. <clears throat> Another one is, <clears throat> it's very similar. I just call it living the artful life where beauty and imagination and feelings are central. Um, and kindness, kindness is mm. core. Mm. Um, laughter, I mean, we could go on and on, but um, if I can impart some of these to um, the people I'm sitting in front of, not as... Um, preaching or not as some kind of lecture, but but just things that have seasoned me into um, a beautiful life that I'd like to share. And when there's time to share it with, with the client, then the, a door usually opens and then I can share it. And um, that feels good. Yeah. yeah. It feels good. But listening is the primary thing. Mm. Most people don't listen very well and it's kind of a shame they're kind of waiting for you to finish talking so they can talk and you know i'm talking a lot right now but i i spend most of my days uh, listening yeah it's pretty quiet you're a good listener 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm the interviewer, so yeah. you know your your job is to talk true. more. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, and it's kind of fun to share because I have spent a lot of time inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time somebody asked me genuinely about me, I was pretty thrilled because I. I'm an introvert and spend so much time. It's like, how much time do you got? <laughs> yeah, I definitely <laughs> experience that too. Sometimes someone just asks the right question and I can't shut up, you know? Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, what else, Sean? Well, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, I just realized as, as we're talking, you know, we're just kind of moving almost, almost through a timeline kind of. You know, uh-huh. and, and uh, I'm just thinking about my own timeline, uh-huh. thinking about, um, you know, death and what does it all mean in the end, uh-huh. you know, life's work. And um, and I, I know for me, like, I haven't really lost anyone in my life, really. Really? Until, um, well, you know, Kent was really the first person yeah. that, um, you know, really had, a, a, had touched me deeply. And that's the, I feel like the first person I, I've really had to, to really grieve. You know, I still have both my parents, um, all my siblings, and their nieces of it. You know, I'm a big family, and outside of, you know, grandparents and some aunts and uncles. And you've lost lovers, though. Lost lovers, yeah. But they're always reachable, you True. know. True. <laughs> True. If you really wanted to find out what's going on. Um, so I guess, you know, just to kind of bring it into final, final, you know, this piece of conversation here, just... Um, you know, what is, just get into the meta a little bit about your perspective. You know, you've mm-hmm. talked a lot about just who you are and the way life is, you know, revealing itself to you and how you're accepting that, you know, the, the diamond, the sense of cause, you know, and, and um, intent oh. and, you know, gift that's coming through you, Richard Palmer, the mm-hmm. individual. Mm-hmm. But then just clicking out a little bigger to look at, like, you know, kind of maybe going back into the elemental space, this kind of click out towards, you know, humans are just another species on this planet. You know, this planet's just one of many floating around in space. Yeah. And, you know, where does your, uh, you know, where does your uh, experience of humanity start, start to fade out and the existential awareness kind of fade in? And, you know, what kind of perspectives and thoughts do you have about, like, you know, why, why humanity? Yeah. <laughs> why humanity? Or maybe not even afterlife. That may even be too specific, but just, you know, just your speculation on, you know, what is what is this all about? Yeah, I have wondered that my entire life, um, because I had a difficult family, I had a very early, I'd say my first enunciation. I love that word because it's it's like something happened to me so profound around four years old. I was out under the mulberry tree and I was looking at the stars coming through the branches and I in that dream streamy place I I imagined that the stars were hanging from the branches and so that was my family that I really fell in love with that around four and it was like a spiritual awakening and so that that was um I didn't understand it but I felt it Mm -hmm. and I think that was the beginning of um my poetic soul beginning to awaken with imagination. And um, it was in nature, mm-hmm. this mulberry tree that, and I would go out there every day. And so um, I have this imagination that death is like another birth. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think they're very different. I think death and birth are pretty similar. Um, and I don't mean to sound cute or cavalier. I just think they are. That's my feeling. So I don't fear it as much as I'm just so in love with living here. I'm not ready to give it up yet. Mm -hmm. um, Mary Oliver was asked once, what do you, what do you want to do? You know, if you, if you could have anything you want, um, and this was, she lived to be 83, so this was like in her late 70s. And she said, just more. Mm. She goes, I just want more of what I already have. And that's my answer. Mm. I want more of what I already have. Uh, I, I have a great life, and um, I've fought for it. And I don't claim to um, <clears throat> think that I created it all. I know there's a lot of luck and blessings involved. And I love the word grace. I think a lot of grace is involved. And I've been helped by a lot of people. Um, but I just want to deepen it. I want to deepen the encounter. Um, I like the idea of reincarnation coming back. And I like the idea of the soul keeps um, evolving and unfolding. Um, I also like the idea of becoming the stars uh -huh. uh, in the mulberry tree. So that, that would be cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't really know. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Well, the reincarnation is kind of a fun one. It is. To speculate with. Like, do you, have you imagined uh, what that would look like? Like, you know, you uh, thought about like, oh, I want to come back in this way. I think if it does happen like that, I want to believe, and it feels like if there is any justice in the universe that you would get to keep the level of consciousness that you die with and you would just continue. Mm -hmm. And so I love the idea of picking up this longing for community, this longing mm -hmm. for beauty, this longing for um, healing and finding the next tribe of people to do that with. So that's, that's kind of one of my um, fantasies is it would just continue with the next tribe. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Great. And I think it will. Yeah. It's like you're a big part of my tribe right now. Yeah, yeah. It's been uh, well. It's been great just being here in Ohio for the month, getting yeah. to spend some more time with you. Yeah. And uh, so we got um, art, healing, soul, elemental, uh, elementals, um, and love is in there too. Love, um, poetry, the diamond, beauty, imagination, yeah. the dream stream. Yes, getting into elderhood and what's it all about. So in closing, is there a, is there a poem <laughs> that would come as close as it could come to, <laughs> uh, you know, punctuating this conversation? Let me think. How many books you got published now? Seven. Seven. Seven books of poetry. That's wonderful. Yeah. And these are available somewhere? Yeah, Amazon. Great. You can just plug in my name and put in Amazon. And I, I think you need the book title. Um, which one? This was my mentor's favorite poem. Um, yeah. the oaks again okay perfect this this was an amazing moment in my life 
when I was um, 40. And I rented a cabin for a week out at Zaka Lake. I don't know if you've been out there. There's a little lake, and it's just north of Santa Barbara. And there's a little horseshoe of cabins around this lake, and it's very private. And one morning, it was raining, and the mist was so thick. I went out at dawn, and there were at least 50 gigantic oaks, and I just decided they were grandfathers and grandmothers. Mm -hmm. And I felt completely called to bow and kneel in front of each one and give my respects. Wow. And it took all day. Oh, yeah. It took all day. And they were hundreds of years old. So I called it a field full of grandfathers. Today is the greatest of all days. I have never been so happy. Heavy misting rain descends like music laughing. The fading dusky light reflects the sapphire lake. Why such happiness? Why such happiness? Nothing much happened today. A simple fire at dawn and six poems later. I could die like this. I have spoken to no one. No human, that is. There has been no one pleading for repair, no one to worry about, no one to save. Just me, two fat wild turkeys and three petulant geese that followed me into the oak forest. There, there right in front of me on the misting lap of the mountains. Like nothing I've ever seen. Today, like no other day, I bow and bow again and again. As tears become rain, I bow to each and every one of them beyond old, curling mossy fur, yellow and green, lichen and mistletoe, fossiled into gnarled, twisting arms. I gently reach up and kiss the knobby hand of the proudest grandfather of them all. He has more elbows than I have reasons to be here. What can a foolish man do in a field full of so many grandfathers but bow and weep and pray? that one day, one day I may learn to grow roots like that. And those arms, oh, I want arms like that. Arms that hold up the sky, arms that embrace beauty, arms that protect the feathered ones, arms that bless and bless and bless. A simple man in a field full of grandfathers. All right, everyone, thank you so much for dropping in and listening to this uh, conversation with my wonderful friend, Richard Palmer. Um, Hey, if you're into poetry or you're looking for some new poetry or you're curious about Richard's poetry, uh, just jump onto Amazon. And uh, he's got seven books of poetry out there. His latest one is called Drinking Starlight. And uh, just type in Richard Palmer, P-A-L-M-E-R, uh, maybe add the word poetry after it in the search and uh, it'll pop up. It's like in the top listings there. Uh, Drinking Starlights. You know, if you haven't really jumped into the Rising Man community and these, and you find yourself getting more curious and more intrigued and something within you is just kind of percolating up to the surface, uh, listen, this is the message directly to you. Uh, act on the impulse. Just act on the impulse. Go to risingman.org. Uh, and just start reading. Just check out all the information on there. And um, that's the first step, right? Risingman.org. Check it out. Um, In the meantime, um, yeah, uh, it's just an honor and a a privilege to put this podcast out into the world. And 
for anyone who is looking for this kind of message around nature and what it means to be an adult and be a man and be connected to this planet. Tons of thanks to uh, Mark and Julian, these two men are the one who uh, take the, the raw audio uh, and I dump it to them and they uh, polish it up and make it sound great and bring it out to you to get a hold of out there in the various channels. So big shout out to Julian and Mark. Um, you know, and honestly guys, the algorithms with the social media, they really work. So uh, help us out by just spreading the word. I'm Sean Barry. Find out who you are inside by getting outside. I'll see you next time right here on First Nature.